Welcome to the Podcast at the Hill. You are about to hear a message from Pastor Daniel Blaylock entitled, United in Community, from our series, One. If you have your Bible, I'm in Acts 2, verses 41 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 47 tonight. I'm not going to be before you long. I'm going to move pretty quickly and get us in around the Lord's table and have a moment to pray together before we, before we scatter tonight. I thank you for coming back on this Lord's Day evening. It's a good Sunday night crowd in the house. Amen. Amen. Great to have you tonight. If you have your Bible, Acts 2, verses 41 through 47. And this morning we were talking about being united in worship, and then tonight about united in community. Well, we're going to kind of put these ideas together. And the passage that draws it together is Acts 2, 41 through 47. Our key verse will be verse 42. So if you've got your Bible, follow along with me tonight. Hear the word of the Lord. Then those who gladly received Peter's word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray for me tonight? Father, I pray that you bless me as I share your word and that you would lead and guide us in this time when we gather together, Lord, around the Lord's table and in prayer for one another. And we'll bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen. United in community. Our key verse, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. I want you to notice these four things tonight and how they come together. You know, every family is bound together by some things. We're bound together by a family name, amen? You know your last name, the last name of your family of origin, and that name carries down. Your first name, that changes with every person, but the last name moves from one generation to the next to the next. It just Amen. And as Christians, we bear the name of Christ, that family name by which we're marked. In baptism, we're marked in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us that we're named after God the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. And so we have a family relationship there and that we, we look at. There are family gatherings and traditions and rituals and meals and all kinds of things that define us as a family. And I want to talk about four of them tonight. And the first one is, we know that we're in the family of God, and one of the signs of that is we have a family history. Say a family history. If you notice here, the Bible says that after this church was birthed in Acts chapter 2, when God comes and fills them with the Holy Spirit and Jesus pours this great gift out on them in Acts 2 and he inaugurates this new living body of people called the church, this spiritual family of Christians, the first thing you notice is they devote themselves to four very important things. And the first is they devoted themselves or they continued steadfastly in the apostles' 
doctrine. That's the first thing that he, they devoted themselves to, the doctrine of the apostles. And I want you to notice that. And there they are. And what is the sign of this? Well, it, it, they continue around the message the apostles preach and teach. What is that message? Well, it's sort of the Old Testament revisited. The Old Testament 2.0. Anytime you read a sermon in the New Testament preached by one of the apostles, they take an Old Testament passage as their text. Have you noticed that? When Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, he takes Joel 2 as his text and he preaches Joel 2. Amen? All the way through, you read each of the sermons in Acts and they take an Old Testament passage and they preach Jesus from that Old Testament passage. That's a beautiful thing. The Old Testament was the Bible of the New Testament Christians. But they read it in a certain way. The Apostles' Doctrine, they reframed the Old Testament. There are two ways to read the Old Testament. There are the ways that Jewish people have read it for centuries. And by misreading it, they miss Jesus when he came. But there is a correct and proper way to read the Old Testament. And that is to read it through the lens of Jesus. And to take that lens and read back it through him gives you a right understanding of the Old Testament. And so when the first Christians, when the apostles looked at the Old Testament, they saw Jesus on every page, prefigured, prophesied, all the types and shadows of the law, all the pictures in the tabernacle, all the prophecies of the Old Testament saints. They saw Jesus everywhere when they read the Old Testament. In the Psalms, in the prophets, in the law, they saw Jesus on every page. And they read the Old Testament in that way. They read it Christ-centered all the way through. And the one they took away from that was a very different view of the Old Testament. They walked away understanding something, that, that God was our Father and that Christ was our elder brother. Amen. They got that. That was a new revelation. Almost nobody in the Old Testament called God Father, very rarely. And yet when Jesus comes on the scene, it's his favorite thing to refer to God as, is Father. And he... the pick up on that very quickly and they began to call God our father in fact they prayed every time they gathered our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name and so they understood God as father and they understood Christ as their elder brother when you read through the book of Hebrews you get that picture over and over and over again Hebrews is one of the oldest sermons of the early church recorded for us in the New Testament. If you wondered what the preaching was like in New Testament times, read the book of Hebrews. The first thing that'll strike you is it was a long sermon, amen? So if your pastor gets long-winded, just remember, he's in good tradition, amen? It's right. That was one sermon, 13 chapters long, right? The book of Hebrews. God is our Father, Christ is our brother. That's their understanding. It reframes everything. And they also understood that they had been swept up in history. Amen? They had been caught up into the story uh, that was bigger than themselves. Whenever they came into the church, they had a new identity. God was their father. Christ was their elder brother. And they were part of a family, and they were brothers and sisters with one another. I remember that when I first came into the church. It's a tradition that has sort of fallen by the wayside now. And some people didn't like it because it felt exclusive to people who came in from the outside. But I want to tell you, I thought there was some merit in the tradition, and that was Christians used to call one another brother and sister. Do you remember that? 
Amen. We referred to one another in that way. The understanding is very right. When you come into the family of God, we become brothers with one another. Amen. Now, my wife always jokes when someone calls her Sister Blaylock, she says, Sister Blaylock is my mother-in-law. Amen. She says, I'm too young to be Sister Blaylock. Sister Blaylock is Daniel's mom. I'm, I'm Shay. So we understand we don't always call that, but the reality is still there. In Christ, we are related. We are brothers and sisters in Jesus. We are spiritual family. And we realize that we've been caught up into a larger story. We live in a world that is all about story today. Everyone is looking for story. And yet it seems that everybody gets stuck on their own story. They get stuck on their individual story. I want to tell you tonight, your story will never make sense by itself. Your story will never make sense on its own. Your story was never intended to be the main plot line. Your story is a side story that dovetails into a larger story. It's the story of what God is doing in the world, how God created the world good, and he made a man and woman, and he created us to know him and love him, but humanity went off the, off the skids, they went off the track, and God, instead of abandoning his project, came down and wrapped in humanity and rescued us from our sin and from ourselves and brought us back into his embrace and restored us into his family again and sent his spirit into our hearts to change us and sent us out to change the world and he's coming back one day to gather that family that is trusted in him and take them home to live with him forever and ever. We're part of a big story. And when we realize that, our individual stories begin to make more sense because we see how they fit in the larger story. And so what that meant was, for them, church was not a place. Church was a people. Say, not a place, but a people. Church isn't a place where you go. It's a people that you become. And that's the way the early Christians understood themselves. They didn't go to church. They were the church. They were the people of God. This was their identity. It wasn't an activity they engaged in. It was their core identity. Oh, I wish we could reclaim this today to understand that that is who we are. You know, we live in a day where lots of people look for their identity in their relationships. They look for their identity in their job. They look for their identity in how well they do at their hobbies. They search for identity in their possessions or in their, in their position or in how famous they are. The world throws all these things at us and says, if you have this, you will have an identity. If you make a name for yourself, if you're rich or famous or powerful, you will have an identity. And Jesus comes to us and says, no, there's only one person who can tell you who you are. And that's the God who made you, who saved you. And he can bring you into a family. Only a father can give a name. Only parents can name their children, and God the Father can tell you your name. God can tell you who you are. God can give you an identity. God can stamp you with a purpose for your life. He's the one who can tell you who you are. He can create that inside of you. He's the only one who can create that inside of you. And the place you find that identity is in the family of God. That's the picture. And so church isn't a place, it's a people. And in the early church, baptism became a very big deal for that reason. Because baptism was the way that you publicly identified with that church. Believe it or not, they did not have a ceremony in the early church where you came down front and said, you know, do you promise to walk in the light of Scripture as it shines on your path? And then everybody came by and shook your hand while we sang, bind us together, Lord. 
They didn't do that in the early church. In the early church, the way you entered the membership of the church was you professed your faith in Jesus and you were baptized in water. And that act of baptism was this outward sign that something had happened on the inside of your heart. And that was the way you went public with your faith in Jesus. That's how it happened. Baptism meant that I joined, I was joined to Christ, but it also meant I was joined to church. It was a very public thing, and it, they, they both went together. No one in the New Testament would ever have understood what we talk about today. Well, I'm a Christian. I just don't go to church. To anybody in the New Testament, that would have sounded like I'm a quarterback, but I'm not on a football team. <laughs> right? It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> a quarterback is no good without a football team. And a Christian is not much of a Christian without a church. Now, you may not be able to attend as often as you'd like. You may be homebound and no longer able to attend at all. But that doesn't mean you're not part of the church. You have united with the church. And you are still one in heart and purpose with the church. And that is important. It was important to the early Christians. It identified you as part of the family of God. Not just a personal profession of faith, but an entering into the community of God's people. Baptism was a picture of that. It was where you got your name. Did you know many times people would change their name at their baptism? It was a naming ceremony. If you came from a pagan background, many of the people in the early church would change their name at their baptism because their old name was associated with pagan or false gods and goddesses and they didn't want to be named that anymore and so they would actually get a new name at their baptism isn't that a beautiful symbol people still do that today in other countries oftentimes in India where millions of people have come from the untouchable caste out of that system of Hinduism and have flooded into the church and met Jesus as Savior many times they change their name and whenever the pastor baptizes them they don't want to be called by the name of a pagan god or goddess anymore and so they they, the pastor literally calls them by a new name when he baptizes them. I have a friend named Cecil Williamson. He's a missionary, and he talks about this in India. And he said, you know, we had to make up names on the spot. He said, one day we baptized 200 people, and we just had to give them a new name. None of them wanted their pagan names. They wanted Christian names. And I said, what did you do? He said, well, when the guy got in the water, I grabbed him, and he said, if he looked like a Paul, I said, I baptize you, Paul, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And if she looked like a Sarah, then I said, I baptize you, Sarah, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said, I just gave every biblical name I could think of. And it was their job to remember their name when they came out of the water. But from that day forward, they used the name that Cecil gave them. Baptism is a naming ceremony. Now, most of us were born with good Christian names because we grew up in a good Christian country and maybe a good Christian home, hopefully. But our names aren't typically associated with false gods. Many of you have good biblical or Christian names, names of saints and famous Christians, and that's great. But the bottom line is this. Baptism is where you get your name. Say that with me. Baptism is where you get your name. You become part of the family officially in that moment. Now, Pastor, you don't mean baptism saves you. I didn't say that. That's not what I mean. Listen, it's sort of like the wedding ring of the Christian life. You're married whether you're wearing that ring or not. But if you're married, why not wear the ring? Amen? The ring is the outward symbol to the rest of the world of the commitment that you made to your spouse. It is a way of going public. Now, you may have a personal conviction against wearing that, and I understand that. That's fine. But if you don't, 
you really ought to wear the ring. Amen? Amen. Why? Because I, I don't know about you, but I want my wife to wear hers. Amen? Because there's some guys out there that I want, her to, I want her to hold her hand up while she's talking to them. Amen? I just want... Amen. <laughs> if you're a Christian, put on the ring. Amen? Sign up Wednesday night. Get your video done. Let us baptize you in water and bear the name of the family. Let us mark you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Make it official. Become part of the family of God. Well, they devoted themselves to the family history, the, the teaching of the apostles. They understood who they were and how they fit in the story. The second thing about this family is they had a family gathering. Amen? Say a family gathering. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship. Say fellowship. Now, in the church of God, fellowship means a chicken died very recently, right? <laughs> That's what fellowship means in, in Pentecost. It means a chicken has lost his life, and we're going to celebrate. Well, fellowship is more than food. Amen. Yeah, fellowship should mean more than food. Now, I'm not saying it should mean less than food. Glory to God. Don't get me wrong. Amen. Lots of gospel birds have entered the ministry right here, okay? I'm not against that. But fellowship is more than food. It's more than eating together. Literally, the English word is to be in the same boat, the same ship as your fellows. It's to be in the same station uh, together of life. It's sharing life together. The Bible says that uh, in, in the next verse here, they continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. That's what the Word of God says. So they spent time with each other. Say they spent time. They spent time with each other in at least two places. There was a large group that gathered in the portico of Solomon's temple. And that was the, all of them would gather. It was a very large, spacious place. And all the believers could gather together in that place. And they could worship together corporately. But that wasn't the only way they met. They, also, they didn't just meet in the large gathering. They also met in small groups. The Bible says they met from house to house. And so you had a large group, a large congregation, and then you had a small group that you were part of and that you met with. So some people today say, well, pastor, I don't believe in small groups. Well, Peter believed in small groups, so you ought to believe in small groups. Well, it's quiet in the hole in this church tonight, amen? I just showed you in the Bible where there was a small group, amen? It's okay. Don't get mad at me. You've got to love me if you want to go to heaven, amen? You ought to be part of the congregation when we worship together on the Lord's day, you also ought to be part of a life group. You ought to be part of a Sunday school class, a Wednesday night group. Whenever your group meets, a group of believers that is smaller and more intimate, where you can come together and where you can know other people and where you can be known by other people and where you can do life together with those people. It, it, listen, often on a Sunday morning we'll have 300 people in this room, 400 people in this room on occasion. There's no way 400 people are going to know one another intimately, right? That doesn't happen. We worship in rows, but we build community in circles. We get together in smaller groupings. And so that's one of the reasons we do life groups. That's one of the reasons those life groups have fellowship times together where you can meet and get to know one another. It matters because part of our family is not just our history and our heritage, but it is the fact that we gather together and we fellowship and we care about one another's needs. That's what the Word of God says. They spent time together. Say they spent time. I'm about to really get personal. The next thing they spent was they spent resources. 
They spent money on one another. Oh, wow. Does the text really say that? You better believe it does. Hear what he says in verse 44 and 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Wow. That's pretty serious, isn't it? They sold extra pieces of property so they could have money to spend on one another's needs, to take care of one another. That's even more than just a tithe and an offering, right? This is a big deal. These people were liquidating assets that they own so that they might be able to contribute to the general fund that would help the welfare of the church. In chapter 4, it says the same thing, verse 32 and then verse 34 and 5. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did any say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common nor was anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now don't get scared. I'm not about to announce a new giving campaign next Sunday morning. You got a week to sell your extra properties. Amen? No, no. I want you to notice, though, the spirit and the attitude that these people had about one another. They genuinely, from the heart, loved one another. Now, I want to tell you it's one thing to say you love somebody. Amen. But it's quite another thing to go sell a piece of property and donate the proceeds to meet a need in that person's life. Amen. Many of us remind me of the young man who got baptized one Sunday and the pastor was explaining to him and he said, let me get this straight. Everything that goes under the water belongs to God. And he said, yep, that's right. So the preacher took him under the water and as he went down, he held his hand up just like that with his wallet securely out of the water. Amen. Some of us wanted to do that on our baptism. Amen. Most of us left it in the bag. It never saw the water, right? No, no. They had all things in common. They shared their resources with one another. Now, eventually, people began to take advantage of the church's generosity, and the church didn't continue this practice of community property ownership for very long. And all of you can imagine why, right? Amen. We've seen communism fail everywhere it has ever been practiced. And I want to tell you, it didn't last long in the early church either. This idea of community property ownership, amen? This communal idea. Eventually, people took advantage of the church's generosity. And so the church had to begin to tighten up on its benevolence programs, and that's understandable. And yet, they didn't give up on it altogether. Sometimes we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and because there are people that will take advantage of our generosity, we are tempted to not be generous at all. Because someone has given us a sad story that proved to be untrue, we want to dismiss anyone who comes asking for us to help meet a need in their lives. I want you to notice the early church did not do that. Now, they did not remain naive. They walked in wisdom. They understood that they couldn't continue this way very long. They soon learned their lesson. And yet they did continue to be generous. They were just more deliberate about it. The Bible tells us that the early church would have a list 
of widows who were genuinely in need and the deacons and elders of the church would investigate and if the need was genuine, they would add their name to the list and they would make sure that they were taken care of and that they had food and shelter and the necessities of life. If someone was poor or unable to work, if someone was aged, if someone was disabled, they would step in and take care of them. The church took care of the mentally disabled in their society since there was no safety net for them. They had a certified list of widows and yet they had some safeguards in place. The early church insisted that if someone in the church was in need and they had biological family, if those family members were Christians, it was their family's obligation first to step in and take care of the need so that the church be not unnecessarily burdened by that need. And so I want to tell you today, the Bible tells us we are to take care of our families. And it, to some degree that even means our extended families to the best of our ability. The Bible says if a man won't care for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever because we know what we ought to do and we just won't do it. Wow. Uh, this also we, which shows up in the book of 1 Thessalonians when Paul writes to a church that is so convinced Jesus is coming next week that a lot of them have quit their jobs and are just waiting on the Lord to come back. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? Jesus is coming next Tuesday, so I'm not going to work on Monday, right? Amen. That's how they felt. And Paul writes to them and says, tell those lazy, idle bums to get up off the couch and go back to work. Because the church shouldn't be burdened with taking care of them because they're not willing to take care of themselves. And so Paul's motto was anyone who can work should work and they should contribute to their own livelihood. But overall, the principle of generosity still stood. Even though they had to rein it in and put some safeguards in place, the heart of the early church was we are family. Say that with me. We are family. And family takes care of one another. And that was the attitude of the church. So there was this, this family history. There's this family gathering where they pull in together and they care for one another. And then they had a family meal. Say a family meal. They gathered together and they had a family meal. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to the fellowship. And number three, to the breaking of bread. Now, this is not just talking about eating together. I believe this is a direct reference to the Lord's table. The breaking of bread, because this phrase is used all through the New Testament to signify the Lord's Supper. This picture, whenever they came together, but in a real sense, every time Christians gathered together around a meal, it was a reminder of their fellowship that they had in Christ. That's why we have the practice today in our homes that before we eat a meal, even though we're not at church, we're gathered with our family, even if we're alone, what do we do before we take our food? We offer thanks. We ask God's blessing, right? Because we remember every time we sit at the table that God has provided for us at great cost for our sustenance and our salvation. They had a family meal, the breaking of bread, and they would celebrate that together. I want you to notice it pointed. We've talked about this before. Past, present, and future. Communion, this meal, looked back at the past and reminded them. 
It reminded them of the Old Testament where the Passover was celebrated. And they remembered, they read the Old Testament through New Testament glasses. They read the Passover through the lens of Jesus. And they celebrated because for them, it wasn't a dusty old story. They were the ones who were enslaved to a devil like Pharaoh. They were the ones who were slaves to their sin. And God had taken a Passover lamb named Jesus and sacrificed him. And his blood had been applied to their hearts. And judgment had passed over them. And they had been delivered by God's mighty right arm. They had burst through the Red Sea of their own baptism. They had come out on the banks of the opposite shore. And they were traveling through this wilderness world. Headed toward Canaan land. Heaven and home. And that wasn't just a story about some Hebrews in the Old Testament. It was their story. They read themselves into the story. They saw themselves in the story. And that's how Paul explains baptism in the book of Corinthians. Wow. He says they were all baptized in the sea. What a picture. You and I delivered from our sins. There's the picture. It also looked back to the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus says, as often as you do it, do it what? In remembrance. Of me. We have that on the front of the table in every church, right? We do this in remembrance of Jesus. We remember the sacrifice and the suffering of the Lord. It looks back to the past. Say the past. We are the ones delivered. We are the disciples who join him around the table. Not just those 12, but all of us gathered tonight around that same table. And we eat bread and we take the cup and we celebrate. It celebrates not only the past but the present. Say the present. You know, in, 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 in Jewish culture, in ancient Near Eastern culture, to eat a meal with someone meant you had accepted them in friendship. It was a sign of acceptance. Whenever you ate together, you were saying, you are my brother, I have accepted you, you are part of my circle, you're part of my group of friends. And so whenever we come together and we celebrate Holy Communion together, we're not only saying, I belong to Jesus and his blood has covered me, his body was broken for me, we're also saying, I am part of this family I have been baptized into his church. I bear the name of, of, of Christian. And you, the people around me, I accept you. I receive you into my life. You're my brother. You're my sister. And so we come and we break off the same loaf of bread. And we dip in the same cup together. And we come and we celebrate our unity, our oneness in the Lord Jesus. And that's the symbol of communion. We are one together. And when we eat together, we're announcing we are connected. We accept. We receive one another. That's why the Bible says that you shouldn't come and do this if you are on the outs with a fellow believer sitting across the room from you. Why? Because you're not living out what the symbol points to. Whenever we come and eat together, we are saying we're good with one another. I love you. I accept you. You're part of me. I'm part of you. But you know what? If we've got all this strife and bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart against somebody across the room, then we're really lying by coming to the table and taking bread off the same loaf as them, aren't we? Quiet in the holiness church tonight. This is the symbol. And this is why Paul says we ought to examine ourselves so we don't take it in an unworthy manner. More often than not, I'm not in danger of taking it unworthily because of, uh, of some sin that I've committed. You need to repent of those and confess them before you come to communion. But oftentimes, what causes us to partake in an unworthy way is our heart, our side of the fence. It's not clean relationally. 
We haven't dealt with the things on our side of the fence. Now, you can't fix how other people think and feel about you, but you can release other people through forgiveness. And your side of the fence can be clean. The Bible says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. It doesn't all depend on you. But your side of the fence can be clean. Amen? We can let go of bitterness and unforgiveness and we can be right with God and to the best of our ability, let things go when we come and celebrate together. Table fellowship is about accepting one another. It looks to the future, this already not yet kingdom that is on the way when Jesus comes back one day. We are celebrating that right now I'm part of a kingdom that's bigger than me. You know what? This is that identity thing again. It's easy for us to come together and focus on our differences more than our commonalities. It's easy for us to look at one another around the room and say, you know, I've got a lot different from other people in this room. Your economics may be different. Your politics may be different. Your ethnicity may be different. Your station in life may be different. Your sports team may be different. Your career may be different. Your family may be different. And it's easy for us to get all crossed up in our differences. And in a room like this, our differences can seem bigger than our commonalities. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Because one day, the trumpet is going to sound, and Jesus is going to rule the earth. And the one thing that you and I have in common in that moment will become bigger than any difference that we have. Because in that moment, you will either be in the kingdom of Christ, or you will be outside the kingdom of Christ. And in that moment, you will forget all about your sports team, and all about your socioeconomic status, and which side of town you lived on, and who you voted for in the last election. In that moment, there will only be the people who see Jesus coming on a cloud, and one group will say oh no I'm not ready and the other group will say oh yes I cannot wait and I want to tell you the people who can say oh yes are the people who gather around the table tonight and say oh yes I'm already part of that kingdom and it hasn't fully been realized yet but it will it's coming it's around the corner and nothing can stop it it is certain it's coming and I am part of it and so are you and that unites us more than anything else should divide us. Past, present, future. One more as we come to the table tonight. Notice that they had a family meal and a family gathering and a family history. But number four, they had a family altar. The last thing they devoted themselves to, it says, was prayer. Say prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. They came together often in prayer. Individually, yes. But collectively, corporately, as a group, they came together and prayed. I had a friend one time who would not lead out in prayer in the congregation. And he wouldn't attend a corporate prayer meeting because he said, Jesus said, when you pray, you should go off by yourself and pray in private. Amen. That's how he felt about it. He wouldn't do it. He wouldn't come together for a prayer meeting like that. He didn't think it was biblical. Pastor, what do you think? I believe he's wrong. I believe he's wrong. All through the Bible, both kinds of prayer are offered to us and modeled for us. Yes, there is a time for individual prayer. Nothing can replace your individual prayer life and walk with God. And yet, an extension of that ought to be the church coming together collectively to pray. We see that example. We see that example in Israel gathering in the Old Testament. We see that in the Psalms that were written to be prayed 
as a group of people together. But we see it in the New Testament too. The early church gathered together. The Bible says that whenever the time of prayer was scheduled at the temple, the Christians were right there together praying. The lame man got healed while Peter and John were on their way to the public prayer service at the temple. When Peter couldn't be at the public prayer service, when he's over at Simon the Tanner's house, even though he can't be with the group, he goes up on the rooftop at the same hour that everybody else is praying so that he can pray too. The public prayer is what drove the, pi- the private prayer. Amen? You know, I'm convinced maybe one of the reasons we don't pray like we should privately is because we don't pray like we should publicly, corporately. I learned how to pray by being around other people who prayed. And then when I got home by myself, I knew how to pray because I'd been in a room with people who knew how to pray. And I caught fire. I lit my match off their fire. Amen? And that's often how it works in our devotional life. That's why we gather together, individually and corporately. They had at set concluded times, but also at crisis times. Whenever they got in trouble, they prayed. The Bible says they're persecuted. And so the Bible says that they gather together and they lift up their voice and the place is shaken. The Bible says they execute James and they capture Peter and put him in prison. And the Bible says they gather over at Mark's mother's house. Her name was Mary. And they gathered. And the Bible says night and day without ceasing the church offered prayer for Peter. And the Lord sent an angel and released him from prison. And he came and knocked on the door and interrupted the prayer meeting. God had answered their prayer. Amen. This is the pattern in the early church. God's people pray. They join together and pray. I love that picture. They had a family altar. They prayed together. Scripted prayers. There were times they prayed the Lord's Prayer. There were times they prayed from the Psalms and they prayed together collectively. Prayers that had been written and they would pray them aloud in unison. They prayed extemporaneously. They would pray as God filled up their heart and they began to pray just whatever God put in their heart and their spirit to pray. They prayed ecstatically. They prayed in other tongues with utterances as the Spirit gave them utterance. They prayed in all kinds of ways and they weren't particular. The big thing about them is they just prayed. Can I tell you something? It's hard to get prayer wrong. (laughs) Just pray. If you don't know what to say, pray the Psalms. If you do know what to say, say it. Amen. If the Holy Spirit fills your heart up to pray in tongues, pray that way. Glory to God. But just pray and pull together collectively and pray. I want to urge you tonight. Join us Wednesday night, 630. We try to be out by 7 o'clock. We gather around this table. We lift up our needs to the Lord. Just a moment, we're going to have special prayer for some who've requested that tonight around this altar. But I want to tell you the mark of the people of God, the mark of this community were some very intentional things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That's their family history. The Bible says they gave themselves to the fellowship, their family gathering, to the breaking of bread, their family meal, and to prayer, their family altar. These are the things that mark us as the people of God. Amen? Amen. Tonight, we're going to come to the Lord's table together before we leave. And we're going to have a time of celebrating Holy Communion together. We'll have two stations here. Uh, John and I are going to serve one. I want to ask Pastor and Miss Rachel if they'll serve the other. And we'll let you just come to whichever is closest to you uh, when, that, when that time comes. But tonight, I want you to notice for the next, uh, this service and the next two, we will be doing exactly what the early church did best. Tonight... We're celebrating Holy Communion. Wednesday night, we're going to gather around this altar, and we're going to pray and seek the face of God in prayer. 
Next Sunday morning, we're going to baptize believers into the family of God. What are we doing? We're doing what the church has done since the beginning. These are the things that bind us together as family. The things that become symbols of our community, our unity, our oneness together. Amen? Amen. I invite you to bow your heart with me as we prepare our hearts. Lord, we love you and thank you tonight. Father, thank you for the chance to share your word and uh, the reality that we are family. We're one in Christ. You have not only joined us to you, but you've joined us to one another. You've made us one in Christ tonight. And we celebrate you and we thank you for that. We pray tonight, God, that you'd meet us here around this altar, that you'd meet us as we gather. And Lord, you'd give us your grace. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Tonight, I greet you. May the Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord. Amen. Paul says in Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup. And after supper was ended, he gave it to all of them and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen? Tonight, whenever we come to the Lord's table, we proclaim the mystery of our faith. Say it with me. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. There it is. The past, the present, the future. That's what we proclaim symbolically when we come together around the Lord's table. Tonight, as we prepare to do that, I want you to take a moment and I want us to bow our hearts and ask God to search our hearts and to search us vertically and horizontally. What do you mean by that, Pastor? I want him to search me this way and I want him to search me this way. Lord, is there anything between me and you that needs to be confessed and repented of tonight? And Lord, is there anything this way between me and someone else that in my heart I can deal with right now and say, Lord, from my side of the fence, I release, I forgive, I let go. I'm going to be clean before you tonight, Lord. Is that you tonight? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you and thank you. And we pray tonight, Lord Jesus, that you would come and search us. As David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, shine your spotlight on our heart. Take your word and your spirit and search us through and through. And Lord, tonight we come before you and if there's anything, Lord, that we've done, Lord, if we've sinned against you and thought, word, or deed by what we've done or left undone, then Lord, we confess it and we forsake it. Lord, we ask you today, if there's any way we've not loved you with our whole heart, forgive us. But Lord, if there's any way we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves, we pray that you would forgive that too. Any way we've not been an obedient church, Lord, any way there's a relational break between us and others, Lord, cleanse our hearts. Give us the grace to forgive others as you've forgiven us, to release and let it go, and to make a pledge to leave this place and do our best to walk in love toward other people. Lord, meet us tonight. Look not on the sins, but on the faith of your church as we trust in your blood that was shed for us on Calvary. And come and make us right with you and restore us in heart to one another. 
And we'll thank you and we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name. They never wander. Thank you for listening to our podcast at The Hill. We pray that you are blessed by this message. For more information on what's happening at The Hill and to stay connected, visit our website at foresthillcog.org. Join our Facebook page, facebook.com slash foresthillcog, or download our app from the iTunes or Google Play Store.